this out. From the ongoing Hollywood strike led by the Writers Guild of America to the current UPS strike and the recent hotel workers strike, one common thread emerges. These unions are not merely bargaining with their employers. They are challenging the very foundations of extreme capitalism, it seems to me. Pulitzer Prize winning reporter uh, and former New York Times, uh, former New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and New York Times bestselling author, I should say, David K. Johnston joins us now for a conversation about how our society um, has engineered a troubling trend of downward mobility uh, through what can only be described as reverse Robin Hood economics. I look forward to this hour. David K. Johnston, good to have you on the program, sir. How are you today? Well, Thomas, good to be back on with you. It's been a long time and probably relevant to your audience. Of course, I was also uh, with the L.A. Times for 12 years, uh, including the three years I spent exposing the LAPD back in 1980 to 83 until I got shut down. Trust me, I was I, I, I was going there. <laughs> you, you, okay. you, you, no, 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 no. You beat me to it. I, I was going there. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Let, let, matter of fact, let me let me just tell you a bit more about David K. Johnson. I was going to do this later, but since he opened the door, let me just go. As I mentioned, formerly of the New York Times, and of course he mentioned formerly of the LA Times, and while there, until they shut him down, he exposed LAPD abuses. Uh, he has hunted down a, a killer that the police failed to catch he's caused two television stations hopefully no radio stations not this one to lose their licenses over news manipulations he revealed donald trump's true net worth he has uncovered so many tax dodges he's been called the de facto chief tax enforcement officer of these united states he is a brilliant 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 uh, investigative reporter and again i'm honored always to be in conversation with david johnston it has been too long but i'm glad to have him on this program in this hour uh, that said uh and we'll get to some of that again as we move through the hour. I'm glad we have uh, 60 minutes to sort of unpack a lot that you have done in your career. But I want to start with uh, what I said a moment ago, uh, David, and that is these 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 strikes. Um, to my mind, um, there are more of these strikes of late um, than in the past few years. Uh, it, it seems to me that something has happened uh, where workers are, are, are like Popeye. I, I understood all I can stands and I can't stands no more. Um, and so they're, they're, they're rising up, they're raising up, which is which is interesting because, you know, when you and I talked some years ago, we were at a point in American history where people thought that unions were on life support. Uh, and there are some who still believe that unions are in trouble as we speak. But what make you, broadly speaking, and we'll narrow it in a moment here, of all of these strikes that we're seeing, whether it's the Writers Guild strike, as I said, the UPS strike, hotel workers strike, teachers strike, I'm told that SAG, I'm a, I'm a member of SAG, that we may be striking as 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 as, 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 as SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. What's your take on all the striking that's going on? Well, there was uh, we've had now a decade of Republican Congresses and Republican presidents, and to a lesser extent, uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, enacting laws that have been very anti-worker and anti-union. Mm -hmm. And if you trace uh, uh, the bottom 90% of Americans' income peaked in 1973 when you adjust for inflation, and it was flat to downhill after that. By the time we got to 2016, um, Amer the bottom 90% of Americans only got 50 weeks pay compared to the full year of 1973. That's 4%. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot. I mean, imagine if suddenly, you know, you, you get paid on December 15th. Sorry, no more money for the rest of the year. And at the same time, these changes in the law have been passed that have resulted in the following. 
uh, health care used to be in addition to your wages. Now you pay by reducing your cash wages and you have co-pays when you go to the doctor. So that further reduces your cash pay. Uh, retirement plans. We used to have defined benefit pensions. Everybody didn't have them. About 45% of workers did. Mm-hmm. But it was on top of your pay. And the amount of money companies give you in a 401k match is about half of what they used to put in the pension plan. That uh, you have to save to get that. That further reduces your pay. And uh, the housing market, because we haven't been building enough housing and we've been cutting back on the adequacy of housing for uh, people at the bottom of the economic ladder, has resulted in the following. For every dollar of additional equity Americans have added to their homes over the last 40 years or so, they've taken on about $2 of debt. Mm. Well, that's a prescription for being on the hamster wheel until you die. Mm -hmm. And so we have all these policies that uh, I wrote a trilogy of books about, Perfectly Legal, Free Lunch, and The Fine Print, a best-selling series uh, of books that explain these policies in plain English, uh, things like how uh, everybody in this audience is being taxed by the uh, oil and gas pipeline industry. You pay them about, well, I said three cents a day when I exposed this. Congress did a study and said I was wrong. It was two cents a day. (laughs) (laughs) But that doesn't sound like much, right, Tavis? At the end of the year, so it costs you uh, $10 for the year. Uh, if you're a family of four, forty dollars for the year. So what? Well, the money goes to about 175 people. Mm-hmm. And if you get a penny a day from everybody in America at the end of the year, <laughs> you have 1.1 billion dollars. <laughs> so these this handful of people are collecting 3.3 billion dollars yeah. of a tax that you pay that never goes to the government. So the strikes that we're seeing are the result of exactly the point you made. Uh, Popeye, you mm-hmm. know, uh, I, I can't take no more. Yeah. I teach, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm a professor of law at Syracuse University and have been since I retired from the New York Times, so 15 years. And I uh, have my students read a novella, an ancient Egyptian novella. It's like, oh, about 4,000 years old. Mm-hmm. And in it, it's the story of a, a poor man who's striving to get ahead, being oppressed by uh, wealthy people above him and how the pharaoh takes up his cause because you can only push people so far before you get a reaction. Now, yeah. luckily, we're seeing a peaceful reaction with strikes. And in the case of the Screenwriters Guild, they say the average pay of screenwriters has fallen by a quarter in real terms over the last decade. Yeah. And yet at the top, you see these bosses in these movie studios sure. and the streaming services who are making, you know, some of them a million dollars a week. Yeah. And we can't we can't afford to pay our writers. Let me let me let me ask you I, I, before I move forward here, let me ask you two things right quick here. Uh one, you're talking to a really smart audience. Uh never mind the host of the program. It's a smart audience. Uh, and I'm curious, what's the name of that novella? Uh, I and others may want to read that. What is the novella? Yeah, it's called The Eloquent Peasant. The Elo the It's very sh- eloquent peasant. Okay. And it's you can find it online. Okay. It's it's difficult to read because it's written in the flowery language of Egypt. But right. if you read a companion piece and you can find that with an internet search, it'll explain it to you. It, it's a terrific story about you can only press the poor so far. And when you begin stealing from the poor, which yeah. is what the rich in America, the super rich are doing now, 
through very subtle means, not the crude means that are in that story, sure. like the pipeline tax, um, you're stealing from them. And, of course, people are going to respond once they know about it. Yep. It's a great name for a book, though, The Eloquent Peasant. The Eloquent Peasant. Uh, I will add that to, to my reading list. When we come forward, just getting started with David K. Johnson, you can see why he's a Pulitzer Prize winner and why he worked at the Times, uh, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, why he's a professor at Syracuse. Brilliant, brilliant brother. And when we come forward, we'll, we'll start with this. Uh, and I'm not naive in asking this question, but why, David K. Johnston, is America so anti-worker? Why are we so anti-union? Not every republic around the world, not every country around the world um, is the way that we are. But why in this country are we so anti-worker perennially? Why are we so anti-union? We'll do that and a great deal more. You heard me uh, give you some sense of David's uh, background, so we'll probe some of that as well throughout this hour on KBLA Talk 15. All right, David K. Johnston, let's get this party started. Uh, I said moments ago that I wanted to ask you when we come forward, as I will now, why America, again, not naive in asking this, but why America uh, has been perennially so anti-worker and anti-union. And maybe I want to maybe I want to edit, uh, retract my word perennially, because I can certainly think of times in American history where it wasn't uh, uh, as bad as it is now for American workers. But um, you're the expert here. I'll let you take it however you want to take it. But why? Are we so positioned in other countries are not as bad? They don't treat workers as, as inhumanely as we do in this country. Well, let's go way back to the beginning of America. Uh, and this is a story in black and white. A society that enslaves people to work them mm. is certainly not a worker-friendly society. In the case <laughs> Say of that white again. people, the Say other that side again, of that yeah. yeah. On the other side of that story, four white people from Europe came here as indentured servants. So they weren't property, but they also uh, came to an environment where the master was under complete, virtually complete control. He couldn't maim or, or kill people as with slaves, but otherwise almost complete control. And many, many of the indentured servants died from malnutrition, disease, etc. So you have to begin with that. Then you look at the culture that came to America from Europe. Europe had guilds. Uh, guilds that did everything from wrapping cigars to making shoes, they were called cord wainers, to making barrels, coopers. And the people who couldn't get into the guilds, because the guilds tightly restricted membership, mm -hmm. often came to America so that they would have some opportunity. Well, that left many of them with a very anti-union attitude. In the early days of our republic, if you had a union and there were cases involving the shoemakers, the cord wainers or shoemakers in Philadelphia, the cigar makers in Boston and elsewhere, if you struck, that was a crime. You were engaged in criminal conduct until about 18, I think it was 43, when a Massachusetts judge named Joseph Story, who went on to become a Supreme Court justice of the United States, uh, said, no, workers have a right of association and they can gather together. For their common welfare, and so long as they are not extorting, in a criminal sense, their employers, uh, they are free to withhold their labor. And that was the beginning of the change in American labor law. Mm -hmm. So people who came here were oppressed, black and white, and they were trying to escape unions, which created this anti-union attitude. Then, after we got laws allowing unions, starting in the late 1890s and then especially under FDR, the Republicans did everything they could to weaken unions. And here's a little important fact that many people don't know, Tavis. When we defeated the Japanese in World War II, that famous far-left American, General Douglas MacArthur, mm -hmm. I mean, 
satirical here. Yeah. <laughs> um, his, his general staff wrote the Constitution of Japan, and it requires unions, and not be organized by company. Each industry has unions in Japan. Why? Because MacArthur believed it would lead to a vibrant middle class, it would create social stability, and would re- reduce the influence of the warrior class in Japan. Uh, to this day, of course, we know that there are uh, people in Japan who want to revive its military and, and engage in uh, militaristic actions, if you pay close attention to the news. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was MacArthur who did this, and have we adopted that same policy here in America? Everybody in the auto industry is covered by a union. Everybody in the newspaper industry is covered by a union rather than business by business. Mm-hmm. We would have a much better off middle class and working class uh, uh, than we have today. And we wouldn't have these ridiculous inequities, all of which derive from government rules and laws that I wrote about in my economics trilogy, Perfectly Legal, Free Lunch, and the Fine Print. Let me let me let me ask you two questions, and I I, I pause because both of them are so uh, so simplistic. They they almost insult uh, the guest, um, given given all that you've written. Uh, but let me just ask you these two simplistic questions anyway. I, I, and I don't tend to ask two questions at once, but I think the two are connected. So I'll ask both. Get out of your way and let you take it. One, do you believe, David, that capitalism? in this moment, in late modernity, is capitalism failing, number one? And number two, what's so hard about people wanting a job with a decent wage in the richest nation in the history of the world? Those are my two questions. Yeah. I'm passing the mic. Yeah, there's, there, there are no, no bad questions, Tavis. Um, the, what we're seeing today is not capitalism. What we have in America is corporate socialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a system now in which, uh, and I've interviewed over 100 members of Congress and the Senate about this, although to be fair, it was mostly in the late 90s and early 2000s. I'd ask them about their constituents and their jobs, and essentially they would all say that, you know, their, their real re- representation is the people who donate to them. And that's how you get reelected. If you don't have people who will donate to you, and that's a very small segment of the American society, then you will get beaten by somebody else. And if you tick off those people and you're vulnerable because you're not in a district that's 80% red or 80% blue, uh, you'll be targeted to knock you off. Mm-hmm. So the campaign finance system, especially the, since the Supreme Court in three decisions, Valero, Buckley, and Citizens United in 2010, have equated campaign donations with free speech, mm-hmm. has completely distorted what's going on. And we have all of these rules that favor capital against workers. That's not how capitalism is supposed to work. We're not supposed to have monopolies and oligopolies. And yet, look all around. How many cell phone companies are there out there? There's three. Mm-hmm. And if you go to one of the little companies, like the one that uses uh, uh, the actor from Cheers, um, uh, 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 God, I can't remember his name. A month, the white-haired guy. Um, uh, you you'll notice they they say we have the same map as the other companies because they're just resellers. They mm-hmm. buy whole you know millions and millions of minutes of, of cellular phone time and resell it uh, to people. There's only three tel- tel- uh, cell telephone companies in America. Yep. There's no competition with that. Mm-hmm. And healthcare, one healthcare company which is organized in a way that I think is dubious. It's in Minnesota where you have to be nonprofit to be 
a health insurer, so they have a tiny nonprofit that owns a for-profit, this United Health. And they have something like 70% of the Medicare Advantage business in America. Businesses don't like competition. Uh, and so they do everything they can to reduce and eliminate competition. And when they don't have competition, it means they can drive down worker wages. And the, the flaw in this is, it, it, on an individual business level, this doesn't apply. But for the whole society, if we raise the wages of workers, mm-hmm. if they got a larger share of the economic output, we would all be better off. What's going on at the top is hoarding money. I mean, there's no way you can uh, make use, unless you're doing business deals, of the kind of fortune that Jeff Bezos has and that Elon Musk has, although Musk is doing a pretty good job of of shrinking his fortune. Uh, But so we have all these laws to protect you and allow you to never pay taxes because you borrow against your wealth. You and I can't borrow against our wealth because we don't have enough of it. But imagine if you had several billion dollars, you can borrow because of the annual uh, interest on your money or interest and dividend and never pay it back. And, and you can borrow from yourself for two or three percent. Why would you pay a 20 or 30 percent tax mm-hmm. when you can borrow at two or three percent? So the, 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 we don't live in a capitalistic society. By the way, the Constitution says nothing about capitalism. It's nowhere does it talk about getting rich. Mm-hmm. It doesn't talk about wealth. It talks about the rights of the individual, freedom, liberty. You can choose to be religious or not religious. That's up to you. It's none of the state's business. Uh, that is what the Constitution talks about. It is not about capitalism, but we don't have capitalism anymore. We have corporate socialism, and it's incredibly destructive. Mm. So a couple of things. Um one, I mentioned earlier, I have a really, really smart audience. Uh, and when you were reaching for that name, um, everybody started uh, reaching out to me. Ted <laughs> you got it. Ted Danson of uh, Consumer Cellular is the company that you were yeah. you were thinking about. Yeah, but trust me, it, did, it didn't take long for people to start to light me up uh, with the name you were looking for. Well, yeah. thank you, folks. Yeah. Thank you, folks. <laughs> I told you, man, it's a really smart audience, and so they pay attention. So that's who you were looking for. That said, so what we to your point, what, what we have now is not capitalism but corporate socialism um but they demonized bernie sanders for being a socialist did they not david k johnston oh absolutely um and i'm not a big fan of bernie let me be clear fair enough fair enough he has very good very good ideas but i don't think he's as president he would not prove competent because he's not a that requires executive skills that he doesn't have okay and i know bernie i've been on bernie's radio show i've known him for years uh, but Bernie is, has bringing very important ideas into the public forum. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that journalists at the top in this country, especially TV and radio, they operate on a herd mentality. So once an idea gets out there as shorthand, everybody goes with it. So unions bad. You know, there was a study done in the 19, early 1990s by the University of Minnesota Business School they compared 625 companies that had unions to 625 matched companies in the same industry without unions. And what did they find? That the companies went bankrupt at exactly the same rate, whether they had or didn't have a union. So right. it's a canard to say that unions cause companies to go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. That their profit margins were no different because the companies that paid higher wages were able to hire better quality workers. Gee, there's a surprise. If you pay 
higher wages, you get better quality workers. <laughs> uh, when, I, when, when, yeah. when I was at the L.A. Times back in the days before the Internet, in the 70s and the 80s, mm-hmm. um, I once called the, the switchboard, and we had a whole group of operators on duty 24 hours a day. I'm in a little a motel somewhere in Wyoming, and I said, I need to get this guy. He's in Angola in the war zone. Here's his name. Here's the company he works for. And I lay down and go to sleep. And about 45 minutes later, the, re- the phone rings, and, and Louise, uh, the operator, says, I have Mr. So-and-so on the phone for you from Angola. How do they get do that? They hired the very best operators. They paid premium wages. And we were able to do things like that. Mm-hmm. Now the attitude is, well, how far can I push you down? Uh, truck drivers, they'll, they advertise, you know, we pay so much per mile. Mm-hmm. But here's what people don't know. They do the shortest route. So if the shortest route has 500 traffic stops going through a bunch of cities in traffic, you get paid for that route. If the logical route's on the freeway and it's 50 miles longer, doesn't matter. You get paid for the shortest possible route. Mm. Uh, of all these rules to yeah. push down wages in unfair ways, and we need to have a Congress that identifies, as we had in the New Deal era, with ordinary Americans, not with super wealthy campaign donors. When we come forward, I want to talk about Congress uh, and those super wealthy campaign donors. I only raised Bernie Sanders, and uh, your your opinion of Bernie is your opinion. No problem with that. Uh, I like Bernie Sanders, but I raised him only because uh, you heard David K. Johnson say, what we have these days is not capitalism, but corporate, corporate, I repeat for the third time, corporate socialism. Why can you have corporate socialism and then demonize Bernie for being a socialist in a country that has corporate socialism? I digress. Good enough for them, but but Bernie couldn't do that. You you take my point. Uh, more with David K. Johnston when we come forward on KBLA Talk fifteen eighty. A rich, rich, rich conversation with David K. Johnston, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, formerly of the New York Times and the L.A. Times. And trust me, I didn't forget. I'm going to get back to this. Uh, um, uh, shutting down <laughs> when you start exposing LAPD. We'll come back to that. Trust me, we'll get to it. Um, but uh, uh, delighted to have David K. Johnston as our guest uh, in this hour, a Pulitzer Prize winner, as I mentioned uh, a moment ago. Um, so, David, there are a couple of things you said uh, before news traffic and sports I want to come back to and give you a chance to unpack right quick. One, to your point about Congress and these super wealthy donors, um, I hear your critique of campaign finance or the lack thereof um, reform in this country, and yet that to me is not disconnected from gerrymandering. And for one of your stature, I don't need to unpack that much more, but it seems to me you can't talk about one without talking about the other, so let's talk about the other. Well, gerrymandering is one of a number of strategies that are being used by those people who are terrified that white Americans are going to become uh, the largest minority. It's already happened in California if you, um, uh, depending on how you measure the demographics. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in 19, 1970, uh, political scientists and, and operatives began saying the Republicans had 50 years to adjust to the changing demographics of America, and they haven't. And the reason they haven't is they can't. Mm. They, are, they are absolutely a party of uh, uh, make America white again. That's what Donald Trump's real campaign slogan was, <laughs> make America white again. And, and the audience should know that I've, I've known Donald for 35 years and written three best-selling books about him, Yep, uh, who he really is, as opposed to his image. So gerrymandering, our Supreme Court has held recently, is not under the purview of the Supreme Court, because that's a political decision of state legislatures, except the most recent case 
And in that case, the Supreme Court threw out the Alabama gerrymandering. But if you read the case, what you discover is it's because the white supremacists explicitly said, we're doing this to make sure there isn't uh, that there's one less black member of Congress mm. from, uh, from our state. Well, if you announce our purpose is racism, guess what? You're not going to be able to get past the Supreme Court. All the Supreme Court did was signal to the white supremacist politicians who are overwhelmingly Republicans, especially in the South, don't talk about it, just do it, mm. and then we'll we'll say it's okay. Because after all, remember John Glover Roberts, the Chief Justice of the United States, told us when he killed uh, part of the Voting Rights Act that, well, America's changed. It doesn't mm. have the racism it used to have. And uh, Excuse me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, to, to your to your invocation of uh, of Donald Trump, who I spent a good part of our first hour today talking about giving uh, his lawyers uh, the filing by his lawyers yesterday to delay uh, indefinitely this uh, trial regarding the documents at Mar-a-Lago. We spent, again, a good time, uh, a good amount of time in our first hour with Connie Rice talking about that today. But since you raised his name and the books you've written about him because you've known him for three decades plus, uh, I'm thinking specifically specifically of your book, The Making of Donald Trump, which I recall reading. Um let me just ask you whether or not, and I know you'll be, I know you'll be candid and be honest, um, uh, again, given how long you've known him and that you've written a few books about him, um, was all of this, and I mean all of this, given who he is, predictable? Oh, yeah. I mean, I predicted in my second of the Trump books, which I wrote in 2017, that, um, uh, I think I can remember word for word, should a pernicious virus of the kind that killed his grandfather a century ago, start hopscotching around the planet on jetliners, Trump will not know what to do. Well, the pandemic comes, mm -hmm. and you know from the Bob Woodward tapes, he didn't have a clue of what to do, because Donald doesn't know anything, Tavis. It's all uh, a bluster and making claims. Donald claims to be the world's number one expert on 23 subjects. One of those subjects, taxes. I am I have a worldwide reputation for. I've lectured on every continent in Antarctica about tax policy. I've gotten two presidents to change their tax policy. And uh, Donald was asked under oath once, uh, so, uh, Mr. Trump, let's talk about accounting. I don't know anything about accounting. You don't know anything about accounting? No. And the lawyer goes on and on to tie down so there's no escape from, I don't know anything about accounting. You cannot know taxes without knowing accounting. I had to learn accounting to write about taxes. And it's just, you know, he claims he knows more than the generals about ISIS. He knows everything about nuclear weapons. You know, Barack Obama's senior thesis was about uh, nuclear weapons. He knows a hell of a lot more than Donald Trump ever will. And so it, with Trump, you have to understand he's just the greatest con artist in the history of the world. <laughs> and he has no soul. He has no morality. In in the uh, the first book you mentioned, The Making of Donald Trump, mm -hmm. Uh, and in a book I wrote 30 years ago, 31 years ago, called Temples of Chance, I name 12, 13, and 14-year-old children who Donald plied with liquor, limousines, and free hotel rooms because they had money to gamble. I'm not talking about a dolled-up 18-year-old passing for 21. I'm talking about 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. And there's a whole judicial proceeding on this. Donald was involved with a major international cocaine trafficker up to his eyeball. He did the most extraordinary favors for this guy. And he wrote a letter to asking that the guy not go to prison uh, 
And what happened? Well, first of all, somehow, mysteriously, the guy's case was transferred from Ohio to the courtroom of Donald's sister, a federal judge in New Jersey, where no crime occurred. And then the mules, the people who drove the drugs from Miami to Cincinnati, they were sentenced each to 20 years in prison. And what did the drug kingpin get? A previously twice convicted felon. He served 18 months. Um, Donald and Donald's letter, if you read it, makes it very clear that it, well, it purports to say to the judge, this is a good guy. Take, you know, he shouldn't be harshly punished. The letter can be read as I and many people read it to say, keep your mouth shut about what we were doing and I'll take care of you. And when the guy got out of prison, you know, he said he had no money to pay his federal fine. Somehow he moved into a $2.4 million apartment in Trump Tower. (laughs) So. So People, the general public has no idea the depth of Donald's criminal conduct that he's simply never been charged with. Yeah. So speaking of uh, the criminal conduct he's not been charged with, um, fast forward a few years after your writing of those texts, he is charged uh, at the moment and is facing other charges uh, in the days and months ahead. Uh, given how well you have known him over these uh, three decades and, again, written these three books about him, what's your sense of how this all ends? Let me just ask you a point-blank question. Do you think? that Donald Trump will ever spend a day behind bars? Well, I think he will be convicted at one of the multiple trials he will face. Whether he gets prison, which would probably have to be at a military installation, or home confinement, which hopefully would be in Trump Tower, not Mar-a-Lago, is a different question. Uh, Generally, white male first-time offenders of white-collar crimes don't get prison terms. Uh, especially if they're in their 70s uh, or close to 80. As but Trump. David, 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 I hear that. So, I, I hear that. Look, yeah. just, just to press you, I hear that. But we're talking about stealing nuclear secrets here. Oh, yeah. No, no. Don't misunderstand me. He he should. Yeah. Yeah, I get, get it. A long prison sentence. He should, given that these were nuclear secrets and how we treated people who, there's a guy here in western New York where I live, mm-hmm. uh, a doctor who was an immigrant from Iraq. He would send money home to a charity to feed poor people from his village. The U.S. government said that, no, he was really sending money to support terrorism, and they put him in a supermax for 23 years. Uh, if the world were just, Donald Trump would be convicted and put in a supermax for the rest of his life. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the world isn't just. Yeah. No, I only pressed on it because uh, you mentioned uh, how white males who are convicted for the first time ever of white-collar crime get typically treated. I take that point. I was just trying to tease that out and say, this ain't just a regular white male. It ain't just a regular white-collar crime. It's nuclear secrets. I right, well, Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. And, and Tavis, Tavis, Donald's true believer supporters will never accept this. Yeah. And just as you have all sorts of Americans today who um, uh, revere Adolf Hitler, I don't know if you've seen the the video at Moms for Liberty, this very fascistic group mm-hmm. trying to take over school boards, mm-hmm. where uh, there's a discussion about Hitler and the crowd uh, hoops and hollers in favor of Hitler uh, and associating with Hitler. Um, I mean, it's just astonishing. I, I'm the son of a 100% disabled veteran of World War II, so you can imagine what I think of the Nazis. Sure. Nope. I take um, and, and yet we have people in this country who revere them. Well, 100 years from now, when we're all gone, there will be people saying, you know, Donald Trump was the great leader and he was the demigod, not demagogue, demigod, mm-hmm. who would have saved us all except for the corrupt everybody else. Yeah. History has a funny way 
of, of being written. Uh, I digress on that point. When we come forward, as I mentioned a couple of times already, um, I, I heard uh, David K. Johnston loud and clear when he said that um, as uh, he was exposing the LAPD abuses, uh, he was shut down. The, the, the question is obvious. Shut down by whom? We'll get to that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. David K. Johnston, as you know, I just heard we are celebrating this week the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter, and they have certainly done their part um, trying to hold police accountable. Uh, but you were you were doing this <laughs> some years uh, ago, uh, exposing LAPD uh, abuses in particular. Take me back to that moment. And when you suggested earlier that you were doing that until you got shut down, shut down by whom? By the L.A. Times. Um the, the LAPD, you know, had this worldwide reputation because of movies and television shows as the world's most effective, honest, efficient police force. And uh, they were presented to the public uh, as being pretty squeaky clean. You know, there'd be corrupt officers here and there because there's always corrupt people. But the department itself was seen as this institution uh, of integrity and effectiveness. And using their own data... Uh, and Chief Daryl Gates' own testimony and records. I just showed in article after article that they weren't what they said they were. Uh, Gates got worldwide attention for claiming there was a crime wave overtaking L.A. So I walked over to Parker Center, the police headquarters, and asked to see the uh, crime statistics books, which back then were kept on big green accounting ledgers, and did a front-page story that said that if you remove the theft of Blaupunkt radios from luxury German cars like Mercedes-Benz's, Crime in Los Angeles was down 6%. Mm. And Gates assigned officers to sleep with women. I interviewed eight women whose boyfriends were actually undercover L.A. police officers. By the time I got to them, they had all moved on from whatever they were involved in, uh, politically or religious organizations. And most of them had uh, spouses and children, and they would not want me to use their names. But there was a case in which a police officer admitted that he was assigned to pose as the uh, girlfriend of a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party for three years. It raises some questions about the young woman's judgment, but for three years. And he was assigned by the chief. And at the point that I broke that story in early 1983, I was about to, sh to report two things. Uh, one was that the two L.A. police officers had each spent 20 years in Communist Party USA and were in the House reports of the House Un-American Activities Committee. And I briefly interviewed one of them who um, wished me well, but wouldn't say anything of, of substance. I mean, he's mm -hmm. quite a gentleman. Um, and uh, Daryl Gates went crazy. He delivered a document to the Los Angeles Times with no police department markings on it, asserting that I was secretly a communist revolutionary seeking to overthrow the government of the United States through the pages of the L.A. Times. <laughs> and they used this to to remove me. Uh, it, yeah, it, I, I, I try to laugh. It was uh, and they sent me they sent me to the to the view section, which used to be called the women's section of the paper to write features. And of course, while I was there, I wrote the story that the United Way of L.A. has never recovered from over the the loans that were made to executives where mm -hmm. those who paid them back were were fired, and those who didn't pay them back were kept on, which tells you they were there to do whatever dirty work the boss wanted. And I solved the Tony Cook's murder case. Uh, Tony Cook's was the young man who was tried five times in Los Angeles County Superior Court for a murder he didn't commit, mm -hmm. and whose lawyer, now dead, was the lawyer for the real killer. And I believe the reason he 
didn't uh, reveal what really was going on was uh, he was afraid the real killer would kill him. And Tony, uh, when he came up for sentencing after the fourth trial, uh, Judge Roosevelt Dorn, who was later mayor of Inglewood, sure. uh, said, and I'm slightly paraphrasing, but he essentially said at sentencing, Mr. Cooks, this court believes you are innocent, but I am required by the Court of Appeals to sentence you, and I hereby sentence you to 25 years to life. And the prosecutor leaped, literally leaped out of his chair and goes, the enhancement, Your Honor, the enhancement. And uh, the judge said, you're correct. Uh, there was the use of a firearm, so 26 years to life. Uh, eventually, Tony was, was freed of all of this, but it, it destroyed his family and whatnot. And that story ran in the view section of the paper. The editors wouldn't put it out front. Uh, they were so protective of law enforcement back then that uh, the late Bill Hazlett wrote a series about uh, the criminal gangs in the sheriff's department. And it went into the round file, the garbage can. Yeah. Um, and then and then you and then years later, you, you, you saw what happened. Uh, and now you have a, a sheriff in L.A. County, Robert Luna, who admits that there are gangs in the sheriff's department. He's doing his part to uproot it. Uh, but you hear the history that David K. Johnston uh, is unpacking or reminding us of for what he was trying to say to us back then. You see why I'm a fan of David K. Johnston. He is a, is a warrior uh, and uh, doesn't back down. You're listening to David K. Johnston right now on KBLA Talk 1580. David K. Johnston, we have covered so much ground in this hour, much more than I even thought we would cover. Um, and uh, I, I just, I, I, I let it do what it do. Uh, and here's where we are uh, at the close of this conversation with, with three minutes to go. I'm always trying to follow my guest. Um, and I think I want to close with this as the exit question. Um, you are a professor these days at Syracuse after all that you've done, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, reporter at the New York Times, the L.A. Times. We just heard stories of your time there. I, I think my exit question is this. For all those young persons listening right now and all those persons who come across you uh, and want to go into the field of journalism, given all that you have endured uh, in that field, what, 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 what advice do you offer? What do you say to these young people? Learn to read the documents. Mm. Uh, if you're just a commodity reporter repeating what the quotes people give you, there's no future for you. But if you become expert in some area, tax, law enforcement, water, um, and you learn to find the public documents, that's where the best stories are. They're right there in the public record, just waiting to be uncovered. Mm. I never work from press releases. The only press conferences I ever go to are the ones that are about my stories. And that's that's what what we need. Uh, and then secondly, um, find a spouse who will support your hobby. Mm. <laughs> I love that. What, what 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 do you make of the fact that so many of our worst secrets, uh, to your point, in this country are hidden in plain sight? Well, journalists by and large are trained about how to construct stories, how to interview people, what the rules of fairness are, but they're not taught. Uh, investigative skills. I'm a former president of investigative reporters and editors, and we that's what we do. We train and teach people. You know, if, if, as one of my mentors used to say, son, if it's important enough to put in the newspaper, somebody already wrote it down somewhere, <laughs> and your job is to mine that mountain of paperwork for the golden nugget of fact, which, after you have polished it up, will get your byline onto the front page. <laughs> I love it. 
I love and it. He was quite right. No, he was quite right. I was going to say, uh, nice, uh, nice impression. And he was, uh, he was absolutely, absolutely right uh, about that. Great advice. His name is David K. Johnston, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, formerly of the New York Times and the L.A. Times. As I said earlier, he's hunted down killers that police couldn't find, exposed LAPD, uh, caused two TV stations to lose their licenses over news manipulations, revealed. Donald Trump's net worth and a great deal more. Um, I, I wonder where reporters like uh, David K. Johnston are these days. But then again, when you consider the pushback you get for being uh, so uh, transparent in your work, um, I understand it. David, good to have you back on again. We'll do it again down the road, my friend. I promise you all the best to you, sir. Take care, Tavis. Take care, my friend. Hour three of Tavis Smiley. That's going to be hard to top. <laughs> That's going to be hard to top that second hour. Uh, but hour three is going to be a great conversation. Why? Because we're going to be talking about why some tragedies capture our attention and other tragedies uh, basically get regarded to the dustbin of history. We'll talk about that with Jessica Gall-Merrick uh, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580.